Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Jano, and you're listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Michelle Commander, Associate Professor of English at the University of Tennessee in the United States. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, Afro-Atlantic Flight, Speculative Returns, and the Black Fantastic, published by Duke University Press. Professor Commander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Not at all. I'm really excited to um, to have you on and uh, really excited to discuss the uh, the book, which I enjoyed. I've been reading it alongside uh, Yagyasi's uh, Homegoings. It's been a really fruitful uh, reading of, of, both, of both texts. So I wonder if you'd begin by telling us a, a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I went to all of my schooling there in South Carolina from um, from birth <laughs> through um, my uh, bachelor's, which I received from Charleston Southern University in Charleston, South Carolina. I then went on to Florida State University, where I completed a master's in English education and started a humanities PhD, but I eventually um, really got interested in cultural studies and transferred over to the University of Southern California, where I received a PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity in 2010. So mostly South Carolina and then a little bit of California thrown in. Right. If you would tell us how the idea um, of Afro-Atlantic flight came about and in so doing, um, if you sort of explain what you mean by the term Afro-Atlantic and how it might be distinct from the the term or the notion of the Black Atlantic uh, popularized by Paul Gilroy. Sure. Um, well, the idea for the book started when I was finishing up my first year at USC. Um, a friend and I decided that we wanted to travel to Ghana, but we could not rationalize spending so much money <laughs> without mm-hmm. having um, some sort of project to go along with our, um, you know, it was an educational experience, but it was also tourism. Um, and so we uh, set off to on our trip, and I had just taken a class in transnational feminism. And so I started in Accra by um, interviewing uh, leaders of various women's organizations. But while I was doing that kind of informal investigation, I was feeling an attachment to the place. And I also seemed to um, meet African-Americans at every turn. And I became very interested in what they were feeling. Um, <laughs> partially, it was a kind of a personal um, thing, you know, finding out if people were having similar experiences to what I had um, and how it was they they became expatriates um, in that place. 
So I very informally started talking with those people as well as the folks who were working at women's organizations. And it later turned into my dissertation topic, which of course then became eventually Afro-Atlantic Flight. With Afro-Atlantic Flight, what I I mean by that um, is that I'm thinking about the ways that not only African-Americans in the U.S., um, but also um, Ghanaians and also afro Bayans are thinking about uh, the prospects um, for Africa um, and the diaspora. Um, And this is um, thinking about you know, the kinds of ways that people talk about myths of triumph, um, the way that they talk about diasporic politics um, and and that kind of thing. I was trying to think about all of um, those uh, concepts and ideas in concert with one another. And I try to not use Black, um, the Black Atlantic in the way that Paul Gilroy did, because Mm -hmm. I felt as if there was not so much centering on Africa within that text. And I wanted to to sort of think about um, slavery and how slavery has its resonances um, on many sides of the Atlantic. So I wanted to come up with a term that um, gave me some of that kind of flexibility and would not be as tied to um, Paul Gilroy's work necessarily, just to kind of um, to sort of make it um, its its own kind of um, expression of what I felt was going on with the psychic flights and also these actual flights that Black Americans were taking um, throughout the Atlantic world. Yeah, that's a, and that's um, a helpful, helpful distinction. Um, just a just a point of clarification. You mentioned um, that on your initial trip to Ghana, you were encountering a lot of Black Americans, and um, were these expatriates or or these tourists or a combination of both? Gotcha. But mostly because I was, we were staying in the Accra era area. Mm-hmm. Um, there were they were mostly expatriates that I was coming into contact with um, at first, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I started looking more closely, then I began noticing the tour buses. But the places that the tour buses were going were on the coastline. Um, in the central region to Cape Coast and Elmina um, and so forth. And so, you know, as, as a part of our tourist experience, my friend and I, this is our first time in Ghana, we too had on our itinerary to go to um, the slave castles and so forth. And I, I met a whole lot of um, tourists in that way as well. This is a, a good sort of starting point to get into uh, some of what you cover in the introduction uh, to the book, um, which is um, where your aim is to sort of demonstrate that the travels toward Africa can become problematic if they're uh, clouded by this sort of individualist concentration, um, as you put it, on homeland returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if if you if you would talk a little bit about about this sort of um, individualist concentration. And, and why you consider it problematic. Right. Well, it, you, you may tell, you may be able to tell from reading the book that I was trying to be very careful um, with the people's stories that I do cover throughout um, the book. Um, I felt that for many of um, the expatriates, many of the tourists and people who are return travelers, um, that 
a lot of their movement was steeped in longing um, and feelings of loss and dispossession um, and feelings of being outsiders uh, within the U.S. Um, and so I wanted to honor um, those feelings, mm-hmm. but also just to suggest as well that there are some problematics in someone just being able to um, escape and not um, do anything with their own mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I talk about neoteric pan-Africanism or thinking of new politics and new ways of thinking about not only looking out for the self, but also thinking about other African descendant peoples who are still mired um, in whatever circumstances across the Afro-Atlantic. And that is not to suggest that we are people who are victims, because I think in the book, I, I um, definitely suggest that we have been able to make a way out of no way mm-hmm. <laughs> um, across the Afro-Atlantic. Um, but just to suggest that um, the very fact of, of living under global racism um, is something that we all need to be attending to. And it's not just about one being able to um, get out, <laughs> so to speak, um, but it's also about ensuring that the politics um, and the ways that that person who's able to get out um, is thinking about things is also about thinking thinking about getting everybody free, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's thinking about that through cultural production um, in very kind of, um, everyday ways as well. Um, and so in the book, I, I do talk about um, cultural production in the first chapter um, alongside these, you know, sort of more individualistic um, flights. But I think the arts and the politics um, are, are things that everybody can involve themselves in, in one way or another. Um, and that's where I kind of sort of trouble this very Western American notion of uh, of a freedom that is, um, you know, that kind of way that we um, <laughs> we're told that we're supposed to be in America. We're supposed to uh, it's a dog eat dog world. Um, you you get it the best way you can. These kinds of kind of colloquial ways that we think about uh, negotiating this space. I'm trying to think. Uh, with this book, think through the ways that we can be um, more embracing of a a wider swath of people rather than just thinking about um, the individual. So that's interesting for for me for a number of of reasons, because it um, seems that you, again, to to quote from um, the introduction, it seems Mm -hmm. that your argument about what's at stake um, is... uh, for there to be any sort of unification, this is a direct quote, for there to be any sort of unification and implementation of a truly transnational political column to address the emotive and systematic ways in which Black people are socially alienated, um, what some may understand as an efficacious and indefatigable pan-Africanism, continental and diasporic Africans must recognize um, this impact of of slavery and post-colonial histories on black communities worldwide. And so, um, so I think that that's one of the really interesting things about the, the book is this, the global scope of the, of the approach of the speculative. And I wonder though, the, you mentioned, of course, that the, uh, one of the ways to, to get away from, um, from this sort of individualist conundrum is, um, 
is through what you call uh, neoteric Pan-Africanism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the definition that you offer in the book is um, new, and you just alluded to this, but new mm-hmm. um, underground political expressions, including the fantastic, um, you know, within um, cultural production. And I wonder if you, if you could say more about this, because I, I <laughs> And something that I found really interesting was that this is not, um, this is not a notion, this neoteric uh, Pan-Africanism isn't, as you said, synonymous with or contingent upon literal returns. Yes, of course. Um, Well, I I was thinking about a couple of things. The first is um, I was thinking about the way in which the notion of Pan-Africanism is so tied to the history of uh, Black American tourism and expatriation, especially um, to Ghana. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking um, about the ways that um, (laughs) um, the government in Ghana in particular um, has used um, that narrative um, to promote um, not only diasporan tourism, but also diasporan investment in the nation. Mm -hmm. And there's a way in which the kind of kinship, the kind of um, solidarity, um, the sort of beautiful logic of Pan-Africanism that um, uh, the earliest um, visionaries were were thinking through, um, in a way, has been used to very different ends by the government. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, I was thinking about how... um, Adding something like neoteric um, is just a gesture toward um, ensuring that we understand that it's something new that we're doing, that it's more speculative in in nature, and that for Black Americans who are turning their attention to places like Ghana, it's not just Ghana, but it's other countries in West Africa, um, and all over the continent, um, really, that folks are looking toward, um, that they understand that it's just not, it's not just about um, their physical um, movement to these places, but it's about a, a sort of shift in the mindset mm-hmm. um, so that it's just not, it's not just about um, the Black American condition, but it is one that's very much concerned with the ways that global racism impacts people across the Afro-Atlantic. Um, and that's what I concentrate on in the book, but that could be expansive, right? It's global racism. Um, but but it's, it's, it's something that people need to do um, in, a, in a way to shift their, their mindset about how they, these things should function. Um, and one of the quotes that I use within, um, I believe it's in the intro, maybe it's in the, the chapter two. Um, I talk about, um, Maya Angelou's, um, travel to Ghana for two years in 1960s. And there's a moment in which Malcolm X makes his trip to Ghana. And one of the things he says to the people who are there, the expats who are there is that they are needed within back in the U.S. to help fight the civil rights cause. Um, and he basically suggested to them that there needs to be a shift in the mindset, mm-hmm. that Africa should be something that's within their mindset, but it doesn't mean that everybody needs to then, you know, sort of leave the U.S. and migrate right. 
um, to to Africa. And I think um, that this is very important. Number one, <laughs> it's not feasible for everybody to leave because right, right. definite ways that folks need to have the finances to support a life abroad. Um, and we can talk about this more later, perhaps. But, you know, one of the things I noticed about the expatriates in Ghana and in Brazil is that these are folks who, for the most part, are of retirement age mm-hmm. or they happen to make a good, great deal of money that they can live off of and not people who are somehow professional of the professional class in these countries. Um, and, and so I think that's a great point that Malcolm X made to those expatriates then. And I think it's something that we should hold on to mm-hmm. when we're kind of thinking about um, what Black resistance might look like, right? It's one thing to sort of say like, okay, well, in South Carolina, this is going on. I'm only focused on that. Um, but when you start looking at the roots of capitalism, of empire, and so forth, you see um, that Blackness um, has always been treated as the abject by various Western powers. Um, and I, I believe that a new form of Pan-Africanism, if we're going to sort of think about it, um, is one way um, that we can come up with a, a kind of politics for survival. Um, and when I say neoteric Pan-Africanism, I definitely kind of couple that uh, with speculative notions. And again, I'm thinking about cultural production and what we can see in the arts as well and how all of these things are kind of speaking to one another, the politics and the arts. Well, and so to, to get into um, the arts, the chapter one, uh, which is titled Fantastic Flights, uh, the Search for Ancestral Traces in Black Speculative Narratives, um, really focuses on cultural production and specifically you, you um undertake some close readings of speculative literary and filmic texts um, that explore these literal and figurative returns to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, the sort of limits or, you know, um, limits or impossibility, possibility or possibility of return. Um, and I, you know, I'm always interested in, in why people, um, <laughs> why others select um, uh, certain, uh, certain texts for, mm-hmm analysis and um, yours is a particularly interesting mix. And I just wonder if you would um, sort of say why you chose that, the, that particular um, set of texts. Right. Okay. Well, that is, I, I believe chapter one, it might be the longest chapter in the book um, or one of the longest um, in, in the book. Um, and Wow, why did I select this? I I wanted to um, ensure that I demonstrated the ways that the literature and the films are um, indicative or expressive of the kinds of longings that we see in actual returns. And so I wanted to um, sort of tease out the threads that I saw between the fictionalized literatures Mm -hmm. like Octavia Butler's Kindred, Mm -hmm. but that I also saw um, in the nonfiction travel narratives like Eddie Harris's uh, Native Stranger Mm -hmm. and Sophia Hartman's Lose um, Your Mother. Um, And so what that ended up um, doing for me um, is number one showing the, the threads that I could then um, sort of 
uh, sort of weaves together with what ha- what went on in the in my Ghana chapter in my mm-hmm. uh, Brazil chapter, um, but it also demonstrated to me the ways that post nineteen sixty five artists were very much thinking about. Um, what Africa could mean to the Black American, right? Mm-hmm. It demonstrated that these artists were noticing that um, the promises of the Civil Rights Acts, these are, that were passed in 1964, 65, and 68, um, did not necessarily do all of the work of the sort of Freedom Project, um, <laughs> that people were still thinking about how they could become truly free. And that was very much connected to um, the sort of reclamation of history. Mm-hmm. People wanted to be able to engage in the imagination. And this is through the fiction. Um, and this is through actual migrations that they were able um, to take. And so what I tried to do in chapter one was demonstrate how all of those um, desires work together, mm-hmm. how um, notions of shame notions um, of dispossessions, dispossession, uh, notions of the importance of connections to African spirituality um, and so forth, all kind of um, work together and demonstrated something about um, Black America in this post-1965 moment. Yeah, and I think... Um, uh end of the chapter, you talk about how uh, shame and ignorance of the collective slave and ancestral pasts are uh, characteristics of dispossession. Um, but the idea of return through travel toward Africa um, has the potential to slake these, uh, these sentiments. And um, yeah, and well, and that I think um, leads us uh, nicely into chapter two, uh, which is titled uh, The Production of Homeland Returns, Misrecognitions, and the Unsteady Path Toward the Black Fantastic in Ghana. Um, and and here you take up um, in in more depth the this uh, post-civil rights migration of, of expatriates, as you mentioned, uh, Maya Angelou and, and W.B. Du Bois were mentioned as these sort of almost pre-civil rights expatriate figures. Um, but then there's, um, a significant, um, a significant wave, um, largely instigated by, um, Nkrumah's very intentional, um, effort to attract people home, which you've, you've already sort of alluded to. Um, and so I, I would, I'd be, um, really interested to, um, here, especially uh, having just uh, passed the 60th, uh, the 60th anniversary of Ghana's independence, um, um, how you see the arc of these of those sort of triumphalist uh, narrative, the Ghanaian triumphalist narrative uh, started um, or centered around Nkrumah, how that plays out um, in this post-60 uh, civil rights, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. period. Right. Um, That's a great question. Um, It is absolutely um, compelling the way that uh, the Nkrumah triumphalist 
narrative um, still has um, the power to attract Black American uh, tourism and Black American um, expatriation. Um, so back in um, the 1950s, um, when Nkrumah helped um, Ghana reach um, liberation from the British col- uh, colonial power, um, he sought Black Americans he sought out black Americans in particular to help him build his fledgling uh, nation. And this included black American professionals, black American artists, um, and, and so forth who, um, very gladly, um, traveled there. Um, and they worked with him alongside him, um, until the moment of the coup. Um, and then you had a kind of, um, moment for I would say around fifteen or twenty years, where there weren't was not as much um, African American um, expatriation to the place because of um, you know Kwame Nkrumah basically um, being deposed, um, and um, it wasn't until Jerry Rawlings gave um, a, a, an apology and started you know, sort of welcoming back using that kind of language of kinship mm-hmm. in the 1980s that you had uh, um, more of an interest kind of gin up among Black Americans to travel um, to the place. And that's a kind of very rough history. Please read the book, those who are listening. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's a very kind of rough um, sure, sure. story of what went on. Right. But it was kind of like, you know, 1950s, uh, Black Americans were invited to um, the, the, the place. It wasn't again until the 1980s that there was increased interest and also a welcome from the government um, to, um, to Ghana um, to tour um, and also, you know, folks began um, expatriating there. And I should note, and I, I believe I note in brief, that there is also an Afro-Caribbean presence within Ghana um, as well. So I I'm, I'm keep focusing on Black Americans or saying African-Americans. Um, but I, I do want to make that note um, there as well. Um but by the the two thousands, with uh, this tourism industry, between UNESCO, the World Bank, um, and the IMF, um, there was a kind of um, push to the government that look, you have this African diaspora; um, they, you know, have. I think the number that was passed around when I was doing a lot of my research there was they have six billion dollars of mm-hmm. um, of of monies that they use for these various discretionary purposes, and they could be using them this money to um, to travel here and consume some of the cultural artifacts that you have um, from slavery, um, and partially <laughs> that that was what uh, helped usher in large numbers of Black Americans. I believe the number is something like 10,000 African-Americans travel to Ghana each year. Um, and that has continued on. So by 2007, when Ghana turned 50 years old, there was a huge push for diasporan investment. And part of that second chapter, I, um, I discuss... The UNIA, cha- the UNIA chapter 
um, from New York that comes in. And this is one that was at that time led by Marcus Garvey's son. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the ministers, the Minister for Tourism and Diaspora Relations came to that meeting and basically said, now we're not trying to tell, we're not trying to say that all of you need to move back to Africa, but you have a responsibility to this place. Mm -hmm. It was a very curious moment. It was, you know, I was looking back and forth between Garvey and this minister, like, okay, what's going to happen here? Uh You're you're telling the son of Marcus Garvey, who was all about African, uh, you know, African diasporic people moving back to Africa. You're telling these people who have these desires of this place that we're not saying that all of you need to move back here. Um, The language of Pan-Africanism was being used um, and brotherhood and kinship and sisterhood and all that stuff was being used in a way to suggest something about responsibility, but not necessarily about um, the possibilities for make for those people making a home there. Um, so you could see some um, some breaches in the way that the government. Um, tried to sort of take up the the language of pan-Africanism, but it, but it, dim, it, it also shows the the kind of, I, I talk about it in the book as kind of diaspora and return, thinking about the financial capital that, that can be made off of loss. Um, so you could see some of that within how the government has talked about tourism and why it's so important for African diasporans to tour Ghana or to move to Ghana in certain kinds of ways. Um, And I say that not to offer a blistering critique of the Ghanaian government, Mm -hmm. but just to show that there are all kinds of reasons why people promote cultural roots tourism in Ghana or expatriation in Ghana, right? So it could be based in sincerity. Yes, these people may have ancestors mm-hmm. who were kidnapped from this land, but also it's the very real thing of um, of needing or desiring, you know, the, the kinds of um, capital that will help uh, sustain the the, the Ghanaian, um, the, the, sustain Ghana um, and its people. Um, right. so and, and there's and and I mean and even I don't think it's even a, necessarily a cynical <laughs> outlook to suggest that there's certainly a recognition that there yeah. that the the longing that um, uh, that this taps into is a very um, sort of profitable, um, you know. Um, wellspring if you will and um so yeah that and and that to to reiterate or to echo please read the book um (laughs) but you know that that interchange you know um with julius uh with julius garvey and the and the 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 ghana the unia um you know that delegation is really interesting and um you talk about how um garvey sort of does articulate his desire to work with the Ghanaian government. Um, but, but the, you know, the, essentially the, the equation has to sort of balance out, right. That, you know, proper infrastructure needs to be in place and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So it is, um, it, yeah, it, it's interesting. And you also talk about this, this, um, problematic assumption that black Americans, um, in large measure, have the sort of disposable income mm-hmm. that should be heading, you know, um, 
being spent supporting uh, Ghana um, in particular, which um, which you also point out that it's 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 just it, it said I found one of the things um, found interesting was sort of you mentioned I think in the in the introduction the sort of um, the idea that um, that at times um, for that while Black Americans are not the only diasporic people who mm-hmm. claim um, to represent Africa, um, they and others occasionally position Black Americans as single uh, people of the diaspora. And I thought that that had an interesting symmetry with the, the way it, it can seem that the Ghanaian um, government also sort of centers itself, right, um, as the, this disposable, the $6 billion uh, should be largely... Um, mm-hmm headed in, uh, you know, in sort of a Ghanaian direction. If you could touch on this idea, I guess, that's related to, um, which is the homeland myths and pan-Africanist rhetoric, uh, why, why, you, you, why you think that they're, they're especially um, appealing to Black Americans? Sure. I think that they're especially appealing to Black Americans because it feels nice when someone says to you, someone who doesn't even know you says to you, welcome home, my brother, my sister, we have been waiting for you. What happened to our ancestors was tragic. One of the things that I noticed um, with the tourism at the slave castles in particular, is that there is a very um, deliberate way in which the tour guides offer their narrative about what happened in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed that the narrative shifted depending on the composition of the groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is something... That occurs, and, they, and again, I go, I, I try to be as even-handed with this as possible, thinking about the idea of sincerity, but there is a, it feels like a real acknowledgement of one's grief and one's pain, um, because people see their contemporary experiences rooted in the history of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, Ghanaians have um, seen African-Americans within that space for 60 years, Mm -hmm. maybe more. Um, I I think that, you know, they really got the narrative down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In some ways it is consistent, even if the expressions of Pan-Africanism are filled with, are riddled with holes Mm -hmm. are not exactly what Pan-Africanism means. Mm -hmm. Uh, This narrative about brotherhood and about, um, Aquaba and welcoming mm-hmm. and and the fact that they're suggesting that you have been missed from mm-hmm, the place mm-hmm. is something that very much attends to um, the emotions of the people who are traveling and and are desirous of that very kind of recognition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and that's what it is. Here is this country. You, you go to this country. The president the police officers, most of the people there look like these black Americans, mm-hmm. right? Looks, they perhaps look like someone that they are friends with or mm-hmm. that are someone that's in their family and so forth. So the optics of the place, the sounds of the place, the, this narrative of recognition um, is very much enticing mm-hmm. and 
is something that can be sustained for a week long tour to go. That's two week. Occasionally, and I mentioned this in the book, tourists who are in a market looking for um, things to take back home for themselves or for their family members, you know, picking up their souvenirs, may be hit with the word O'Bruni. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And realize that they're recognized as strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, a Bruni um, has all kinds of uh, d- definitions, including stranger um, or just someone who's not from this country but is black, mm-hmm. or it could mean um, white person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's all kinds of ways that people use that word. But when that happens during tourism, it can be hard to come back from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But typically what ends up happening is that tourism experience is so nicely curated mm-hmm. that that kinship narrative is sustained mm-hmm. and people ha- are heartened and they want to get back to Ghana mm-hmm. Um as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've noticed that with a lot of people, the way they talk about um, the place is that it felt like home. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere that if they can do it financially, they want to get back to the place. Mm-hmm. Now, things happen differently once folks are living in Ghana as expatriates, which I go on to detail. Um, of course, I use Sidia Hartman's Lose Your Mother mm-hmm. for part of my evidence, but also the ethnographic interviews that I was able to conduct from 2005. So those earliest kind of informal interviews and then my trips back to Ghana um, over that long uh, period, um, you, you begin to see how the narrative gets fractured by the everyday encounters people have. Mm-hmm with um, Ghanaians. One of the things that um, the book has prompted me to, to um, uh, revisit um, is uh, Skip Gates, sort of PBS film from 15 years ago now. But the, I think it was the Wonders of the African World where he um, sort of made a similar uh, pilgrimage and, and just, uh, as you mentioned, talking about this being desirous of, of that recognition and, um, and the, these narratives of, of recognition that are that are sort of uh, played for profit, um, but are also deeply resonant with um, with visitors for the first time, and even uh, repeat visitors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, so, so in the um, I guess continuing on, um, but in a, a different way, the. Uh, the the, the third chapter, um, we love to be Africans. And is it, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but it's Sadaj. Sadaj. And the effective performances in Bahia, Brazil. Um, here you sort of talk about the, the this infra-diasporic move um, toward Africa um, and the narratives produced um, in particular by Black Americans who spend time in, in Bahia. Um and here again, we're sort of talking about uh, the tourism industry, um, and and again a, a sort of post uh, post civil rights, post sixty five um, Black American heritage focus on Brazil. Um, and I, I just wonder uh, if you could sort of talk about uh, again how why Bahia um, and and uh, yeah, let's start there. Why Bahia? Okay. Well, I should probably give the history of how I even 
encountered it for the project. I went to, um, so I went to Ghana for the first time in the summer of 2005. And that fall, I went to the Oswad conference Mm -hmm. that was held in Rio. And um, my friends and I encountered a woman at the conference and she inquired about our possible dissertation projects. And I told her what I was thinking about um, as far as expatriation to Ghana. And she said to me, (laughs) you know, there is an expatriate collective in Bahia. And I said, oh, really? (laughs) I had no idea that there was an expatriate collective there at that time. Um, And so I um, traveled there myself and and found it. Uh, Of course, I did some research beforehand and got some leads, had some interviews set up before I went there and then used the snowball effect to to meet other Black Americans there. The collective is uh, much smaller than um, that that is in uh, in Ghana. Mm -hmm. Um, The Ghana estimate ranges between people say 1,000, some people say 5,000, um, so in the thousands. Um, and it's it's uh, smaller in Bahia, um, but at that time that I was doing the initial research, it definitely was, um, was growing. And there's so many reasons that people select Bahia as that place that they find Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, and I thought that, you know, in that chapter, I talk about the Avocet venture Mm -hmm. that was um, geared toward having at least once a day flights, direct flights from the U.S., possibly places like D.C. or New York, directly to um, Bahia. And some of the rationale for that project was that folks could get Africa without the war or disease or trouble that they would encounter on the African continent, which is so problematic. Mm (laughs) the 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 several reasons why that's so problematic, um, but there is a way that um, Africa does feel um, sufficiently. Um, it there's there's a way in which Baia feels like Africa, so it's something that's different from what Black Americans have experienced here in the U.S., but it's also significantly different. Um, from what they experienced here too, if that makes sense. So, um, so there's that notion, which is very problematic about getting Africa in the way that they can understand it. Um, and there's also the fact that uh, Bahia uh, is home to a population that is estimated to be Af- um, 80% African of African descent. Mm-hmm. Um so there, there's the optics of the place, similar to what was functioning in, in Ghana, um, and that people feel as if they see their family in Bahia. Um, there's also a kind of change in their narrative about slavery. So where the narrative about slavery in Ghana is very much about um the breach of the transatlantic slave trade about the kidnapping of people and so forth. One of the things that I noticed that differs in that narrative um, in Brazil and in Bahia in particular 
is that it's very much aligned with these stories about how the enslaved people were able to triumph over their oppressors. And this was in slave revolts, but it was also in spiritual practices like Condomble, where uh, these African slaves, enslaved people were able to align their spiritual gods with the Catholic saints and um, were able to kind of hold on to their traditional expressions in a very kind of radical, subversive fashion. Um, so, so, so those are some of the reasons why Black Americans have sought that place out. It's the myths that and stories that people continue to tell about the revolt of enslaved people. It's the um, seeming ability of those people to maintain connections with Africa through their spirituality, through their food, through their dance, um, and, and so forth. And there's a way that Black Americans feel as if, m- many Black American tourists feel as if Brazilians have been, a- Afro-Brazilians have been able to maintain authentic connections to Africa mm-hmm. that Black Americans have somehow lost, mm-hmm. right? And of course, one could get into conversations of, of if that's even true mm-hmm. um, and give examples of the retentions that we have in the United States from Africa um, and so forth. But what I noticed with the actual expatriates and the cultural roots travelers is that is a belief about um, among many of them that these are the people that we would have been if we did not as black Americans lose our connections, our Mm -hmm. heritage, our traditions from Africa. It's as if slavery as it exists in the U S somehow defeated all of that or beat it out of us. Mm -hmm. Be colloquial about it. Um, That that's something that many of the expatriates um, and cultural groups tourists believe about the United States. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen right. <laughs> that that is truly the case. And of course, I think you can see the way I um, see how I feel about it when you read that chapter. Yeah. And, and I mean, and you, t- you talk about how Black American sentiments about Brazil were and remain bound up, the, this is a direct quote, quote, with the notion of a particular type of uh, paradisiacal futurity based on the imagined absence of, of racialized oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. And um, yeah, I, w- one of the things I think that's particularly interesting about this chapter is that it's not just, I mean, you do, um, you do quote someone who says, you know, Bahia is the new Ghana. And so in that sense, it's sort of this continuity or this, this, um, uh, it's this more accessible, you know, there's no, as you said, no, um, it's more accessible. There's no, you bypass the war, the disease, the jet lag, you know, it's, um, it's much more reachable than Ghana, but it's also, um, Ghana and Brazil, uh, uh, talk to each other in important, um, ways, uh, as well. And so I wonder if you, if you, uh, would talk about that aspect, um, um, of the, of the chapter. Uh, the ways that there are connections between what's going on and the- yeah, because as I said, you know, part of part of it it talks about how um, um, part of what you talk about is that uh, in in a in a certain sense, because of its accessibility, Brazil has um, 
not not entirely supplanted, but become an alternative destination, right? Literal destination. But in terms of the um, the relationships of um, of you talked about the um, the Tabum people um, okay. in Ghana, right? Um, and so I thought that those were just interesting intersections and connections. Okay. Yeah, that that was really interesting. I was I actually ended up adding the section on Sabon people after. Um, well, I had a Fulbright in Ghana for um, the academic year 2012-2013, and I was um, asked asked to be in a documentary on the Sabon people, um, and I was just struck as I was standing back listening to various folks being interviewed about Brazil, I was struck by the way that they constructed Brazil as a motherland for Mm -hmm. them. Um, So the Tabon people um, are descendants of these these African enslaved people who were in Brazil who revolted and were repatriated along the West African coast, including Ghana. Um, And they were given um, some amazing land in the Jamestown area of uh, Accra that was um, Oceanside and so forth. They still have their community there. There's a Brazil house uh, house there. Um, but it was interesting the ways in which they constructed Brazil as a motherland that they wanted to get back to. And it's not as if they somehow believed that they, that they were not Ghanaian. It's just that they understood that their ancestors also had a life in Brazil as well. So it's very interesting how these people who had been kidnapped and or sold from Africa initially made it to Brazil, made it to Bahia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and were repatriated back to West Africa, um, had this very um, Afro-Atlantic identity about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted to eventually see the place of Brazil. So I thought it was very interesting the kind of how longing functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the other things I talk about at the beginning of that um, chapter on Bahia with the Tabone people is um, an art project, a letter writing uh, project that happened uh, between these um, descendants of um, those folks who were repatriated from Bahia And this is all along the, they're writing the letters, exchanging letters between West Africa and also in (laughs) as well. Um, So I thought it was very interesting, the expressions of longing and wishes for connections that these people had. Um, um, It was was a very kind of interesting moment of um, coalescence, I think, um, showing how desire functions on all these different registers um, and the kind of dispossession that the institution of slavery um, wrought uh, 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 among so many different people, people that you wouldn't even expect um, having these kinds of feelings of, of, of longing um, and, and and are so desirous of reconnecting mm-hmm. With, with people who are also descendants of these people who uh, went through this very traumatic experience. Well, and um, to sort of uh, follow along with that and that, um, and to, to move into the, the fourth chapter of the book, 
what's interesting about this chapter, which um, is in, is titled Crafting Symbolic Africa's in a Geography of Silence, Return Travels to and the uh, Re-Narrativization of the U.S. South, um, this in, in, in lots of different ways, this, this longing is sort of turned sort of turned inward, right, for um, mm-hmm. if we're thinking um about about uh, Black Americans in particular, and in this chapter, you you take up um, the way cultural producers in the U.S. South um, apply speculative thought um, in many ways to disrupt um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, narratives that that persist um, uh, through time. And I wonder if you if you would um, talk about um, Talk about the, this uh, cultural production uh, that you <clears throat> that you choose to highlight in this chapter. Okay. Um, well, I I start that chapter by thinking about a moment that I actually had forgotten about until I was writing the book, um, or it had not occurred to me very often, at least. I was thinking about a class that I took when I was a student at Charleston Southern. Um, It was on Southern literature. And part of that course was um, a tour um, of um, the haunting and the ghosts of Charleston. And I remember that there were not many tales of enslaved people within that tour. There was only one. Um, And I began thinking about why there was such an absence of that very thing. There's so much in Charleston about being able to um, almost time travel to the old South. You have the cobblestone streets, you have the horse-drawn carriages and the plantation homes and all of this stuff. But the topic of slavery is rarely broached. And at that time, that was probably around 1999. It was in the late 90s. Um, There was not a whole lot in the narrative of Charleston that included slavery. And I, you know, sort of think through my time, even as a child in South Carolina. I mean, I mentioned that I grew up in Columbia, but I really grew up in the Lower Richland area of Columbia and also in Eastover and Hopkins, South Carolina. Um, and these were all the sites of the plantations on which my ancestors labored mm-hmm. and died mm-hmm. um, and also lived, of course. Um, but I, I wondered in that chapter what um, speculation looked like over time. Um, so I, I think about moments like Decoration Day. I mean, we just had Memorial Day yesterday. I was thinking about the ways that enslaved people after the war would go and decorate with flowers the um, tombstones of those uh, Union soldiers who had, uh, you know, fought to, to help free them. Um, I, I think um, about the sort of post-1965 ways that you had uh, pan-African entities go into the South or make demands of the South for land so that their their people, Black people in the U.S., could basically be expatriates within the nation, have their own um, country within the U.S., mm-hmm. Um, so in that chapter, I think, well, the chapter before that, that Brazil chapter, 
I think I ended with something like, what might a politics of non-surrender look like? What might it look like on the ground? And so I look at the moments that you had the Republic of New Africa demanding that these 11 southern states grant some space within the states for Black people. Um, I look at the way the Oyutaji village in Sheldon, South Carolina was founded in the 1960s. And they suggested that they were the only African village within the U.S. And I also look at the ways that Black Americans, um, who were not necessarily people who were pointed at as heritage preservationists, but were everyday people, how they challenged what was memorialized Mm -hmm. about slavery, about the history of the Civil War within um, these very contentious spaces within the South. And I particularly look at South Carolina, um, but there are also moments where I talk about places like North Carolina and the establishment of Soul City um, and and so forth. Um, But I was very interested in in what that might look like in the South, what it might mean to sort of Mm re-narrativize these histories and what we think we know about the South. And people have been very active. Again, it's not always people who are attached to some kind of um, formal organization or some political organization, but everyday people who basically say, look, I have um, I have money in my retirement and I believe that there should be some kind of memorial to Nat Turner or mm-hmm. to formerly enslaved people or people um, or to recognize what our people went through. And so here is this money. And so that's part of what I do in that chapter is just show how, what it's looked like on the ground within the contentious space that is the South. And we can see that sort of happening um, today in Louisiana um, in Alabama, basically saying that now it's against the law <laughs> to remove the Confederate memorials <laughs> and so forth. Um, so I, you know, kind of think through what that meant, what it meant for Bree Newsom to remove the Confederate flag mm-hmm. from the state house and so forth. Um, so that chapter is about how it might look on the ground, how a sort of politics of, specu- of speculation, what that might look like on the ground, how we might be able to... Um, challenge these narratives in a speculative um, fashion and and demand more from our governmental uh, uh, officials Mm -hmm. um, to sort of, you know, offer some form of reparation Mm -hmm. um, to the Black community for um, the institution of slavery and everything that came along uh, with it in the aftermath. Yeah, and and one of the figures that you highlight, excuse me, is, is Joseph McGill, Mm-hmm. Um, right. He's a historical preservationist mm-hmm. and a Civil War uh, reenactor. And he's uh, sort of gone to various uh, plantations, starting with, um, um, I think, the, the Magnolia Plantation mm-hmm. um, and sort of outfitted himself in shackles and um, mm-hmm. sort of reenact slave life. But he has like a larger project to attract uh, financial support for the restoration of, sli- of sites of slave life. And in that sense, you say, I mean, I think what I, what I thought was interesting about that figure is in addition to everything you just said, was things that you've previously alluded to in terms of mm-hmm. democratizing master narrative and, and, and encouraging this sort of global participation <clears throat> in, uh, if I'm not repeating myself in re-narrativization. Um, mm-hmm. 
so um, one of the the things too, if, and if you if you um, go into uh, more detail about this, you just alluded to it, but these sort of black separatist schemes, and and in particular the um, African Oitunji village in Sheldon, is is a particularly interesting um, interesting case, right? And especially this notion of of being a a, a U.S. expatriate within the United States. Right. Um, and and creating and you know sustaining African cells and um, if you could talk about about that I think that, that like I said it's one of the more interesting parts um, of the chapter. Sure, um, the Oyutunji village was um, indeed a very interesting site to include uh, for the book. Um, as I mentioned previously, they. Uh, were founded in the mid-1960s. Um, and this was after their founder traveled to Nigeria and um, and basically wanted to recreate what he saw there in a local village. And, um, and they have a kind of Yoruba spiritual um, form, form of worship that they feel is the most authentic in the Atlantic world, basically. Um, and they um, kind of hold that idea about the authenticity of what they have there um, because they have not syncretized uh, mm-hmm. their um, their ancestral worship, their gods, their goddesses um, with any kind of Western faith. So they believe that they're more authentic than saying what's going on in Brazil with Condomble. Okay, <laughs> so that's getting into kind of specifics about uh, how they they formulate things. But what that place has done over time um, is educated what they suggest is hundreds of families over time. Um, there there was a period where there were more than a hundred people staying there. Um, in the last few years or so, there's, you know, only about uh, 30, 35 people who actually live on the compound um, and so forth. But one of the things I found interesting in my research is that I attended the Gullah Festival in the Low Country, and that usually takes place around the Memorial Day or Decoration Day um, celebration. And what's not always on people's itineraries when they're um, attending the, the Gullah Festival with their tour organizer is a trip to Sheldon from Buford, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. Buford is the site of the Gullah Festival. And then one must travel about, I believe it's 25 or 30 minutes to Sheldon to go to Oyutanji Village. And one of the moments that I talk about within the book is of this group who clearly half of the people in that group did not want to go to Oyutanji Village. (laughs) There's a way in which people attach African spirituality with voodoo and mm-hmm. these people are um, Christian believing folk mm-hmm. who um, have misconceptions about African spirituality and had no interest in getting off of that bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so about half that group, maybe more um, did come off of the bus um, to have a tour. And so I, as a scholar, who's mm-hmm. <laughs> some sort of re- a researcher, um, just kind of like joined the group and sort of watched everything that happened. It was really interesting the way that we're, you know, they're basically, we're told you have to hurry up. You have 
you know, 15, 20 minutes to go on this tour. And at a certain point, the bus driver is blowing the horn for them to come on and so forth, because the other folks who were on the bus waiting for them wanted to go to the Gullah Festival. They felt as if that group of people who have retained um, African traditions and African ways was what they thought was legitimate. They didn't see what was happening at Oyutunji as um, legitimate necessarily. Mm -hmm. But those people who got off of the bus at Oyutunji, when the bus driver blew the horn, he had to blow the horn several times. When he blew the horn, they were just like, oh, ignore him. (laughs) We want to keep learning. There was a woman that I was standing behind or walking behind, and she was just saying, you know, I want to know. I want to know the real story. And so, you know, it's very interesting how Oyutunji serves served for many years as a place where folks really thought that they were getting a connection to Africa. But now it's seen as this place, and it's been written about over the years by um, local newspapers, the white community um, in that uh, county, and so forth, as weird and curious, and as if it were a were a um, community that was somehow harboring criminals from these black yeah. uh, radical groups and so forth. But what it's done for, you know, another group of people is offer sustenance. It's offered them a connection um, to Africa. And, you know, one of the things I try to get across in the book is that really these stories that we tell about Africa and spirituality um, and so forth, their truthiness Mm-hmm. really doesn't matter um, mm-hmm. as much. Being being able to prove, <laughs> you know, right. uh, everything um, really doesn't matter. It's about how people are imagining a space or saving, a, keeping a space, holding a space um, that is liberating for them. They're not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to get closer to Africa. Um, and that's kind of like the takeaway from the book, you know, even when I think back to what's going on in Brazil, one of the things that I offer in that chapter is this idea that um, these people are longing for a connection to homeland as well. Um, and perhaps, you know, what they're doing there, these these sort of, I, you, they're called myths, but it doesn't mean they're lies, right? right but right. stories and ideas that they believe about their connections to Africa, um, are very similar to, I would say that the the emotions that undergird how these stories are passed on and so forth, very much parallel um, the kind kinds of feelings of dispossession that Black Americans themselves feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other thing I forgot to say when we were talking about that chapter on Bahia too, mm-hmm. is that there is a belief amongst many Black American expatriates, at least at the outset there was, that Brazil somehow did not have a race problem. Right, right. And and that is something that was promoted by the government, the federal government of Brazil over time. Um, After slavery ended, there was a a promotion of this idea that there could be a creation of a Brazilian race, this sort of mixed race population, and that racism would somehow go away. Um, but and, and people sometimes when they just just do the tourism, they may get that. They may go away with that. Um, and so I traced a couple of people who were um, who believed mm-hmm. that very thing, and they could have. There's one person I talk about in that chapter who had who traveled there as a tourist a couple of times before he moved there permanently. Um, and then after he invested all of this money in building a boutique hotel and noticed 
how race functioned there. He, you know, was basically kicking himself for believing what he thought he saw. And, and so that plays a big role as well in Black Americans thinking of that place as Africa without the racism and so forth, because it's very much promoted in some tour guides narratives um, and not so much so in others. So it depends. Um, Things have changed over time, but there is this idea that somehow the American dream, this pursuit of life, liberty, and especially happiness is one that could be located in Bahia, Brazil. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there, there is a promotion in the narrative in Bahia of kind of, um, honestly, it it almost feels like a speculative kind of proposition. Mm -hmm. It's it's not living your life as a victim or feeling so despondent, but trying to find spaces of joy, which is something that we should applaud. Um, But, you know, there are very real issues going on in Brazil um, and Afro-Brazilians have have fought and have organizations and have had organizations for so many years trying to also work against um, um, these various forms of repression um, that are all steeped in, in the sort of um, the sort of hatred of blackness within that society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just a different kind of racialized system. But again, because of the, the way that that idea of Brazil as a racial paradise was passed down for, I guess, a, you know, a couple hundred years or so, uh, maybe not as much, maybe not a couple hundred years, but you know what I mean? Right, 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 right. <laughs> for so long, um, it, it's still something that has kind of stuck, even though that is not the case within the space. Um, but it's a very kind of interesting um Africanized space. I, I didn't write about this in the book, but one of my favorite restaurants to go to was a very vegetarian restaurant in um, in Salvador, the capital city of Bahia. And it was owned by a Ghanaian man mm-hmm. and his Brazilian wife. And he just said that Bahia felt like home. <laughs> I didn't write about it, but it's just very interesting how he felt, um, you know, if he was going to be anywhere outside of Ghana, Bahia was that place that he found was so much like his home in Ghana. So it's it's very interesting how um, that place is kind of authenticated, right? As as African, even by this man who was a, a restauranteer um, there. Yeah, and and again, I mean, you know, um, to sort of reiterate what I said earlier, I one of the things I you know found compelling about that chapter is precisely these um, this sort of. Um, Crosstalking of uh, of Brazil and, and Ghana and, and more more widely, mm-hmm. um, and I'm glad that you sort of talked about that um, that mm-hmm. art from a sort of early 20th uh, century and, and before sort of mm-hmm. post slavery um, construction of, of Brazil as this sort of utopia that then gets uh, tempered by um, by realities um, mm-hmm. as people mm-hmm. experience them. You know, sort of speaking of, I guess, limitations and um, possibilities of, for 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 return in terms of returns. Uh, your your conclusion um, is titled uh, "Say Me My Name: Genetic Science and Merging Speculative Technologies in the Construction of Afro-Atlantic Reconciliatory Projects." And um, and here you really you talk about collaborative uh, cultural production. 
but also uh, about the, the you also speculate about the terms that Afro-Atlantic speculation might take with things like genetic, te- uh, genetic, or rather DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you highlight um, a case study or two of, of folks who have used this technology to I guess, strengthen these mm-hmm. sort of claims of connection. And I wonder if you would sort of talk about that a little bit more. Sure. Well, I was um, very much interested um, in thinking through what these DNA tests, like from 23andMe and Ancestry and so forth, meant to African Americans. And I remember seeing—I remembered seeing um, so many of these commercials, um, either suggesting that family stories about where the ancestors came from were all wrong. Or there was another one about um, African-Americans where the man basically said, I had my um, DNA test done. I was able to use Ancestry to look through all these records. And I found out that my, you know, something like great, great grandfather was a business, was formerly enslaved, but became a businessman. And there was a way that um, the science was, you know, basically positioned as a way for folks to find such triumphalist narratives within their DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just started um, for that chapter, I was just thinking about um, what kinds of stories um, people might find, but also the connections that they may locate between people on the African continent proper. Um, And so I do kind of um, go through one such case, but I was also sort of thinking about what I found. So I actually, for that chapter, I actually did the DNA test myself so I could understand exactly how it worked. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that occurred, well, there's a couple of things that that happen once you submit your sample uh, to these companies. Um, once Once everything is processed, the first is that you you get a breakdown of your DNA. So the DNA that you got from the random ancestors that you got them from, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to vary from yourself to your brother or your sister or from parent, from yourself and your parent and so forth. Um, but it gives you a breakdown of these places you've uh come from. Sometimes it's by region, West Africa, or it may say you're 10% Ghanaian. Mm-hmm or you're 34% Nigerian or or however um, it goes, but it also gives you a list of your relatives. So people who have taken these tests and they give you an approximation of how close um, you are kin. So it could be if your your mother or father has taken it, that would would show. But typically for many Black Americans, around the five, um, sorry, the fifth cousin to eighth cousin is where one may get um, an African cousin show up Mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. day. And of course, all of this is is sort of based in a kind of scientific speculation about Mm -hmm. the connections of these people. But the story that I tell in that chapter, that concluding chapter, which is really short, but what I tell in that chapter is about this man who's able to find a specific connection to a local local, uh, village uh, and is able to receive an apology and all of this kind of pomp and circumstance for his return um, and so forth. So I was thinking about the possibilities of that and how various countries will respond once Black Americans 
began touring because of their connection, saying, <laughs> and, you know, most of my DNA is from this particular country. <laughs> African ancestry told me that my people come from here, how they're going to respond in return. <laughs> um, I cannot remember which African, which West African nation it was, but one of them basically said that if people can prove that they have, they can show their DNA tests they would give them some kind of diasporan um, visa or uh, dual citizenship or some such. So it'll be interesting to see how that will work later on as far as sort of legitimizing um, their kind of um, position in those places. So it's not just we're some woeful Black Americans who come back to Ghana as a potential place that our ancestors could have been drawn from, but I have ancestry told me (laughs) that I have... you know, ancestry from this place. And it'll be interesting to see what the government does, what what these various governments will do with that information in the future. Um, Because again, that one case I talk about in the book, there was an apology extended and so forth. Um, And and some of the sort of threads that I've seen, some of the ways that um, Black Americans have been responded to in Ghana, for instance, is that a local village, a chief of a local village may say, Oh, you know, welcome here. We want to allot you this amount of land and we want you to build here and be here as our brother and sister. And then there's a kind of exchange that happens where uh, the expatriates may help support um, that village financially uh, because they feel a kinship with them and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see how this works uh, later on. And there are all kinds of uh, Black American, uh, U.S. based. Uh, organizations are thinking about repatriation Mm -hmm. in Ghana um, and and so forth, Uh, trying to collect money on on sites like GoFundMe Uh (laughs) and so forth to sort of um, to make it happen. um, So it'll be very interesting to see how this works. If you go on Facebook, there are groups, some of them are are secret groups, but there are groups for people who have ancestry in Cameroon or Uh um, from Benin and so forth, you know, and these are like, um, I forget the, how, how they're titled, but it's something like um, DNA tested diasporans. Okay, <laughs> right, like certified, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a certification. If you have your certificate that suggests that you have some uh, ancestry in this, in this place, come here. And then you may have some people who are Cameroonian or whatever, whatever country there, just kind of welcoming them and, you know, trying to guide them. Um, and, and so forth. It's very interesting how all of this is taking a different kind of speculative mm-hmm. turn, using science as that kind of authenticator rather than the fact of the institution of slavery. Uh, as you, uh, you know, to, to echo, I think, yeah, it really will be interesting um, to see how all of this plays out, especially I guess given the history of everything from Sierra Leone and Liberia to right, Tunji yeah. Village to, you know, to see how, um, um, yeah, how all of this uh, goes on to the future. Um, well, and speaking of the future, um, uh, can you tell us about what you are uh, working on now? Well, I am still thinking about speculation. I can't quit it. <laughs> Um, I am looking now um, at a project 
um, that does not involve travel yet, which I'm kind of sad about. Um, whenever I was doing my research over those, oh gosh, um, nine or 10 years, I suppose, um, people would always just look at me and say, oh, we feel so sorry for you, Michelle. They would say it sarcastically, going to Brazil and going to Ghana all the time. Um, <laughs> but now I'm looking at um, some... Um, I'm looking at a project where I'm, I'm thinking about um, the usage of the arts as technologies during the Cold War period. So I'm thinking about how speculation, Afro speculation kind of developed um, during that period um, in response to and alongside um, everything that was happening with the space race and NASA and so forth. Um, looking at the kind of lead up to what we um, talk about today is Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking particularly at, still looking at that post uh, 1965 period. So looking at the 1960s, approximately to around 1990, thinking about the the music um, and the literature and the visual arts that were coming out during that time period, mm-hmm. um, and what um, these cultural producers um, were doing. Um, in response to or in concert with what was going on as the U.S. sought technological prestige through the through NASA and the space race. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. And I um, definitely sort of put in a, uh, a placeholder of love for you when, you know, when that um, project reaches book form uh, for you to come back on the podcast. I, I would love to. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much um, uh, for, for coming on today. I've really enjoyed um, speaking to you about the book, which uh, I enjoyed uh, very much. And um, so folks, uh, today uh, you've uh, been hearing me talk with Professor Michelle Commander, uh, who's Associate Professor of English at the University of Tennessee, about her book, uh, Afro-Atlantic Flight, Speculative Returns, and The Black Fantastic, published by Duke University Press. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me.